I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 97 of Carroll Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is English filmmaker and now singer-songwriter Sally Potter. Potter's widely acclaimed breakthrough film, Orlando, was based on a Virginia Woolf novel and recently marked its 30th anniversary. It introduced a lot of the world, or at least me, to the wonderful Tilda Swinton. She plays the title character, a young nobleman who doesn't grow old and at some point is transformed into a woman. You're hurt, ma'am? I'm dead, sir. Dead? That's serious. Can I help? Will you marry me? Uh, ma'am, I would gladly. Um, I, but I fear my ankle is twisted. For Potter's 1997 follow-up, she not only wrote and directed The Tango Lesson, but also stars as a filmmaker with writer's block who offers a film role to a talented tango singer in exchange for tango lessons. Do you work in the cinema? Yes. Do you give tango lessons? Yes. A preview of things to come, Potter wrote and sang songs on that film's soundtrack. More acclaimed films followed, including The Man Who Cried, starring Christina Ricci, Kate Blanchett, and Johnny Depp. Yes, starring Joan Allen and written almost entirely in iambic pentameter. At first with pleasure, like they never had, and then they phone you up and drive you mad. The weeping and the wailing and the rest, they'd ruin it. At first, they were the best. And most recently, 2020's The Road Not Taken, starring Javier Bardem, Elle Fanning, Salma Hayek, and Laura Linney. But Sally Potter is a restless artist with more on her mind than filmmaking. At age 73, she has released her first solo album, Pink Bikini. She wrote the songs, sings, and plays keyboards with her longtime soundtrack collaborator, Fred Frith, among the supporting musicians. The album looks back on her teenage years in 1960s London, when she was discovering her own sexuality, wrestling with shame, rebelling against her mother, and finding her artistic and political voices. As you'd expect from someone with Potter's keen eye, the songs are vivid with images and emotional details. The album opens with the song Mama and its first line, I came out old, then grew younger. The title track is a coming-of-age movie contained in two minutes as a subject buys a pink bikini, encounters a French boy at a disco, and deals with the aftermath. Potter shot two videos for the song Black Mascara and hula hoops in both of them. That song finds her gaining perspective on her mother's and her own struggles from long ago. At 14, life was hard, but oh, yours was so much harder. Speaking from her music studio in France, Potter reflects on her development as an artist, the instruments she played, the poetry she wrote, and the transformative effect of having a film camera in her hands at age 14. She wasn't discouraged by the paucity of female filmmakers back then, and she didn't let age be a factor in pursuing a new career now. As she puts it, who cares about the calendar? I may have to tack that up on my wall. Potter also tells about bands she played in as a young woman, the even more ambitious musical project she pursued before Pink Bikini, and the follow-up she's already working on. Then there's the script she has ready to go whenever actors are available to work again. Already a fan of Potter's films, I've been won over by her music and inspired by what she has to say. I suspect you will be too. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Sally Potter. Dance, dance, dance girl, dance as if your life is beginning. Your eyes wide open. Hear your body singing. 
Welcome to Carol Pop. It's <laughs> Thank great, you. It's great to have you here. It was I, I realized it's been just over 31 years since I was introduced to your work because I saw Orlando back then and was so struck wow. by it. And then I saw recently you you had a conversation with Tilda Swinton about the 30th anniversary. And so much of that conversation was, I can't believe it's been 30 years. Um yeah. and on this album of yours now, Pink Bikini, you're looking back even farther. Um yes. Is first of all, is this something? Have you been writing these songs over a long period of time, or was this something that you decided to do recently and said, you know what, I'm just gonna do an album now? It's something I've always wanted to do. Well, I've been writing songs over the decades, uh, repeatedly. In my twenties, I was, you know, full time touring, improvising lyrics actually, and writing some for um, another group, but. Um, Often for each film that I've made, even, I go through a phase of writing as lyrics. Um, and so the the word structure involving rhymes and meter and so on, the whole lyric writing side of it, has really not, never gone away. But what happened after the last film, which closed, The, the Road's Not Taken, which closed uh, the day, of it opened and closed rather the day of the pandemic shutdown. Mm, right. Um, uh, like many other people, I suddenly found that I was alone in the room with my piano. <laughs> and so that motivated me to do what I had been wanting to do for a long time, which was to sort of dig deep into the songwriting mode. And so um, I was writing a script as well, a film script, which is ready to go. But I've been really day in, day out now, I guess this is the fourth year, um, writing music all day, every day, music all day, every wow. day, all day, every day. And so that's that's kind of how that was the paradoxical opportunity to do that. But the longing to do it has been there for a long time. Yeah, you've been writing songs for a while. I mean, you had a song in the the Tango Lesson soundtrack, as I recall, and I think you sang that then. Yes. Um, you, as you mentioned, you were in a group. Was that in the sixties? You were in a group. Uh, it was seventies. Seventies. The the FIG feminist yes. improvising group. Yes. Um, and was that something where you were sort of writing structured songs like this as well, or no? Fig was, was all improvised. It was all improvised. Work, wild, anarchic, over the top, and, and amazing. Um, exploratory work with some wonderful musicians in it. I wouldn't count myself amongst the top rank of those musicians, but I was inventive with my words and I was singing improvised lyrics. Um, I was also in a couple of other groups, the Film Music Orchestra and another one called the Marked Brothers, three women, in fact. Uh, and those were, were written songs, written and structured songs too. That was, I guess, where I did a lot of deep, learning about listening, um, about how to listen to different lines simultaneously and write in in the moment. I think of improvisation as just really very speedy form of composition, of writing. Um, and so that was great. And then the the more consistent music part of my life in these decades while I've been making films is working on the soundtracks in which every sound 
I've always experienced as music, whether that's the, a room, a, the tone of a room when it's empty or the sound of a car passing or the timbre of a particular actor's voice right? or, or what we normally call music and how to structure it. So I think the ear training from working on film sound, which is often absorbed subliminally rather than consciously because there's so much information in the image to take people's mind and attention. Um, but it's a it's a magnificent way of really, really learning how to listen to many things at once and work yes. with those those many tracks, you know, 40 tracks, 50 tracks, sometimes one's mixing more even. Yeah, films such as Yes, I mean, you could look at all of the, the speaking in that as lyrics in a way. Yes, it is lyrics, spoken lyrics um, with inherent musicality. Um, all in iambic pentameter, so ten syllables line. And yes, you could call it lyrics. You could also call it a, a way of observing how people speak, in fact, in normal, what we call normal speech, with a rhythm and a lilt to it, um, even using, for example, swear words as, as a kind of percussion throughout what somebody's saying. And I found uh, listening to that and trying to incorporate that into the words was, yeah, it was music. We thought of it as music and we thought of it also as normal speech and we thought of it also as a stream of thought. Yeah, I worked with a friend on a songwriting book uh, several years ago and it was really the point of it was to encourage people to get over their inhibitions and just be creative and write songs. And there's such a there's such a leap that people have to take to sort of think, oh, I'm going to write lyrics, I'm going to write songs. And 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 what and a helpful reminder, and I think this is part of what you're talking about, is that talking is improvising. And as I'm talking to you, there are rhythms to what I'm saying. And exactly. you could you could put music under that and it would sound like it was intentional and yeah. it was, you know, suggesting something. Yeah. And I'm and sort of you your... the way I do. <laughs> I'm doing the best, the very best I can do. And so I, yeah. When you were growing up, did you sort of envision a future of doing music or doing just art in general? Were you thinking of films originally? Like what was your what were your sort of aspirations kind of during this period that you're writing about now? The teenagers, well, by the time the teenagers came, I had already I'd already been writing poems since I could write, since I was four or something. Um, and I'd been listening to music, but not yet making it, but listening with great intensity and passion. Um, and I think by the time I hit the teens, I'd already, well, it's certainly at 14, I decided and announced to the world that I was going to be a filmmaker. Um, this was not met with wild enthusiasm. <laughs> so there weren't too many female filmmakers about, and certainly not too many 14-year-old female filmmakers about. But I had a camera in my hands that I had been lent, and I started to make films then, just very small ones, um, which gradually got bigger. What were the films that kind of got you to that point as a 14-year-old to think, this is what I need to do? Well, interestingly, it wasn't so much the films that I watched, although I had seen uh, a lot of films, I think, by then, but it was the experience of having a camera in my hand. It was about making films rather than watching them. It was about looking through a lens and seeing the world framed and become magical, both by what I chose 
to look at and what I chose to look to leave out the sides of the frame. And I understood how framing something gives it this intensity um, that is not there when your eye is just roaming around 360 degrees. So I think the the intensity of that led me to want to explore it and make more and see what more I could see and, and then eventually hear what more I could hear. Um, but meanwhile, yes, I had certainly by the age of 14 seen many musicals. Um, my mother was a keen musicals fan, singing in the rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Oklahoma, all these classics I'd seen several times over, I think. Also, a lot of early black and white films from uh, mostly funny comedies, actually, made in Britain, sharp, ironic comedies made in Britain at that time. And then I started to watch French New Wave and then Italian, early Italian cinema, uh, Indian cinema, Russian cinema, the Eisenstein and Vertov and all the inventors of montage and so on, and realized that there was this sort of endless treasure trove to learn from by by watching and understanding the choices the director had made at every stage. And that was inspiring. And that was my education, in fact, as a filmmaker, so I didn't have any formal training at all. Right. And obviously, this is the days before you could just, you know, put them up on YouTube or stream them on the Criterion channel or something like that. I mean, you had to do some oh. work, I would assume, to see all those films. <laughs> yeah, you had to go out. Right. Uh, and there are houses there were a few. that show them. Sorry. Yeah, there were a few, you know, there were a few. So you had to be selective. Or I was, in fact, a part of a film club uh, when I was about 16 um, with the projector in the room showing 16 millimeter prints that were, you know, shaking and covered in scratches and the sound of the projector sort of churning and chundering mm. in the background. So you, I experienced, in a way, the fragility of film at that time as a, as a medium, not now in the same way, although we don't know what fragility the digital world has yet. Not enough time has passed. I think the experience of film as a live event, yes, that was different than now. But perhaps the fact that the choice was more limited and you had to be selective or you had to seek out, maybe that was an advantage because this are infinite choices right. that people have tend to mean that they narrow their field. They look at the familiar, they look at what they've already liked and find something similar rather than something different because there's so much that's different. So I think there is a strange advantage to not having so much choice. Um, where I am now, I'm in France where I, where I write music and scripts and there's a barn with a projector on a screen not an old-fashioned projector, so I'm streaming from DVDs or or from or from online stuff. But I tend to organise my viewing now uh, in seasons in that way. So I'll find uh, I looked at a film that happened to have the great Anna Magnani in it, and I thought, oh, oh, I must watch more of Anna Magnani. So it became an Anna Magnani season, right. which I'm not sure I've ever heard of in an actual cinema, but it was great. Then uh, I watched, as I'm in France, I watched a, a film that had a Marcel Carney film that had Jean Gabin in it, this incredible um, sort of hero of the working men in France as an actor. Now then, then that became Jean Gabin season. These were both actors. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good way to watch to to group together different people's work and see what their trajectory has been actually. Right. 
how did you come to be a 14 year old with a movie camera in your hand? Well, it wasn't in my hand full time, but I was fortunate enough to have an uncle who had a, a partner who was also a filmmaker, um, uh, albeit an, a very avant-garde filmmaker. And she, it was, who put the camera in my hands and uh, let me try it for a, for a week or two. And that was enough. What kind of camera was it? Oh, an eight millimeter, a standard eight millimeter, not even super eight, a standard eight millimeter camera. With sound? No, no, no. These were yeah, silent. Would, that's what I, that was sort of what yeah. I was picturing those. No, no, no. Silent visual poems. And then I got myself uh, an eight millimeter camera. And um, indeed, I even edited it. If, if, if anyone knows what eight millimeter film looked like, it was almost invisible to the naked eye. And when you edited it, you had to cut it, you know, with scissors and glue. And it was like a miniaturist thing. But it was actually a great training that for later on, 16 millimeters seemed enormous and 35 millimeters. Oh, my God, the luxury. You could right. see every frame. So um, that was all, of course, we're talking the analog world um, in which I started filmmaking, but later made a transition, of course as everyone, to the digital universe. That sound of the projector running your film, which is basically the soundtrack of those silent films, it's so, like, that's something that transports me when I just hear that sound. And I think, <laughs> of, you know, my, my dad showing our vacation, you know, eight millimeter vacation videos in the study or, uh, you know, or even just like being at, you know, some, some theaters later on where you just could, you know, you'd sit near the projection booth and you just hear that sound, which is something you don't have anymore. Yeah. Well, as a filmmaker, it's also a terrifying sound because, you know, at any moment the whole thing can, can be, go on fire or be torn to pieces. Yeah, yeah that's never a good thing. As we know, uh, the projectionist had final cut in the days of analog film. Uh, at what point did you start playing music? Uh, well, I actually played the violin from the age of seven to 14, and then, but I wanted to play the piano, but for various reasons, I wasn't able to until I was 14. So my decision to become a filmmaker was about the same time that I really uh, took to the piano with, with passion. Um, and I had lessons for just over a year, not very long, but enough to get me going with sight reading. And, and I played uh, Bach and I played Beethoven and Schubert and whatever I could either stumble through or learn how to play. And I improvised a bit too. Um, but it took a while before the piano was something I could really experiment with and find clusters of sound and develop chord sequences and so on. But But I learned tremendously by just pay, playing the same uh, preludes and fugues of Bach over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Were you uh, going out to see shows in London around this time? Uh, if I could afford a ticket, a few shows. Um, yeah, I saw some shows. I guess if we're talking, if we're talking fourteen, what did I see? My God! I mean, it could you could you could continue through your teenage years. I'm just wondering whether it was sort of a formative yeah. experience to go to, you know, clubs and see. I mean, you're probably a little early for like the UFO club or UFO, um, but uh, 
you know, some of those like underground London bands or whether you were more likely to go to sort of a big concert somewhere, go see the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park or something. Yeah, there's this strange thing, which is that I was always at the time a little too young for everything. A little too young to be a filmmaker, a little too young to participate in the great protests of 1968, right. a little too young to go out clubbing and so on. Um, over the years, things have caught up with me and now I'm considered a little too old to have a debut album and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, doing things in inappropriate ages seems to have been part of my road. Um, and I think... But really, you're asking what I was going out to do with music. I think I was more going out to films at that point and uh, events of that kind than music. Music was something I absorbed alone in my bedroom, listening on repeat to my vinyl collection. It was a very, very private world. It wasn't about going out to gigs Although I did go to a cream dig gig, I remember seeing Jeff Beck and Ginger Baker, and, um, and I didn't. I did not get to a Rolling Stones. I did not get to a Beatles. I did not get. I did get to the Animals. Now I come to think of it. So there were the odd gigs uh, around, but as I say, it was really about listening to studio recorded music, and it was the. The clarity, the precision, the intimacy of recorded studio music that really got me, actually, more than live sound at gigs, which I found tended to be over loud and distorted and a kind of muddied sound. Right. That's got better now. But I remember feeling frustrated by it that I couldn't hear every line crystal clear like I could at home. Um, from the recordings of, of the music that I loved, which it was very incredibly varied from, uh, in terms of singer-songwriters, it would have been, or, or singers anyway, Billie Holiday, Edith P.F., Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Patsy Cline, you know, the, it was uh, the Fado music um, from Portugal and, and many others, along with classical music and a lot of jazz. So I was a huge fan of the wildest of improvised riffs, uh, that were based on the structure, but, you know, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Ornette Coleman, and so on. So um, my tastes were eclectic, but I was an avid, an avid listener. And I found that all of those musics and all of those singers inspired me and taught me about everything. It taught me about how to make films, you know, how, how to have true feeling, how to communicate something in a structured way, whether a song needed to be a story of some kind or evoke a situation or whether, it, or just music without words, without singers that was pure and transcendent in some sense, taking me into the mysterious parts of existence that I wanted to look at. And, and music was the way that took me there. Was your family bringing a lot of this music into the home or was that you? Both my parents, who separated when I was young, but they both were extremely uh, passionate about music. My father was passionate about Beethoven in particular, and Arthur Schnabel as a pianist in particular. 
um, and listened to them on 78 records through giant horn gramophone. And I sat from a very early age uh, watching him listen and seeing the tears roll down his cheeks and understand what real focused engagement with music looked like. And I wanted to do that too. Um, with my mother, she she was an aspiring singer herself and she loved Schubert Lieder songs and had a high soprano voice and would sing them and took up a, a, a late training in music as an adult. So I grew up in that that atmosphere, although mostly they were not practicing musicians, they were they were practicing listeners to music. When you sat down at the keyboard as the pandemic began, did you think to yourself, I'm going to make my debut album? Or did you just think, I just want to make some music and see what happens? Well, I had just come off the back of making, of composing all the music for my last film, The Road's Not Taken, for the first time, uh, everything written and using Logic as an app that I had finally conquered and was able to really work with. And um, so I had an appetite for more. I really had an appetite for more, but I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And in fact, I started with a different project, not Pink Bikini, with a different one altogether, very ambitious, and did wrote about 50 songs or something. That is still on the shelf. What is that? Um, uh, it's It's a version of a retelling of some aspects of Orlando, the aspects that the film and Virginia Woolf's book left out about the last 400 years of British history. Um, so that was going to be an album or a just project? A double or? album. Double yeah, album. That sounds very and, ambitious. Yeah, very ambitious. And it was big orchestrations and everything. And I recorded a lot of it with a lot of musicians. I really dived like straight in into the deep end of the high board, you know. Wow. Um, it was pretty incredible. Anyway, it's still there and it's work in progress. But the then I decided, okay, I'm going to now, as an album to actually put out, that I can put out soon enough. I will concentrate on something smaller. Smaller is perhaps the wrong word because I felt it was ambitious too, but smaller in scale, limited to a particular period of life, the teenage, the turbulent, agonized, joyful, intense, melodramatic teenage years that I think almost everyone experiences and take, in a way, steps through those years in song form. This is certainly a very intimate project, whereas the Orlando one does not sound like an intimate project. Exactly. It was the opposite. Yeah, I felt it was. I needed to do it that way round, or at least to put out first something that had a degree of, in a way, modesty, actually, and simplicity, keep the arrangements simple, work with musicians I already knew and loved and had worked with, but, you know, not a vast number of them, whereas the other one I you know, brought in whole sections of an orchestra. And see what I could do, and also to to refine my voice because the uh, Orlando related one was not not using my voice at all. It was using lots of singers, very good singers. But for Pink Bikini, I specifically wanted to find a voice that, in a way, I had lost. My heart is aching. I cry, but long to rejoice. It's my silence you can hear breaking as I try to find my voice. 
Revolution Brewing is Illinois' largest independently owned brewery, and its beers are brewed only in Chicago using pure Lake Michigan water. If you enjoy comic books that are actually beer, you'll love issue number 19 of Revolution's League of Heroes IPA Variety Pack. Takes you back to the arcade days with a relatively new beer style, Cold IPA, plus a Subs Hero, Action Hero Hazy IPA, and the all-new Arcade Hero. Get on the joystick and follow at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. So you had the concept first of, I'm going to look back on my turbulent teen years and then started writing songs. And did you start then writing songs on the keyboard or with pen and paper? Or keyboard. I usually start with music anyway, before the words. And um, so I would thought, yeah, start working with a chord sequence, actually, and um, work on that for ages and ages and ages um, on an upright piano or the grand piano I have in London until I found, until I felt that something had settled, that there was a kind of world there harmonically and then start building up around that and find a melodic line and in parallel find the words that went with it. In some cases I wrote the words first and then set them, but often the words and the music come kind of hand in hand, more or less. Um, the more I go on, though, and the the, the album I'm working on now um, is I the music comes first almost every single time, and I've kind of felt that if I can get the chord structure, the harmony, the melodic line, the the sound world right first, then the words kind of like emerge from that and and fit rather than struggling to to fit something right. Is this the way you've always written, or is this something that's evolved over time? I don't think I really have a method. So I think it's more like trying stuff and finding out what works, what gives, what where the energy is, what what somehow needs to come out. I don't know how else to put it. What needs to be sung, what needs to be said, what needs to be felt what I need to hear. I guess I'm trying to write what I feel I can hear in my inner ear, but doesn't yet hasn't yet manifested, something like that. Right. Um, and then it's it's more like growing on, it's improvising it. So I, I rarely have like the grand plan worked out. There isn't, there isn't, it's like neither do I when I'm writing a film script. I start somewhere and then build on that something or somewhere until I've got a bit more that I can then start to refine and edit, which gives me clues about where to go next and so on and so forth. Um, but always there seems to be the process of, first of all, needing to touch root, touch a root, the root of it, the basis of it. With a film script, that would be like a one-page description or, or evocation of what kind of film world I want to produce, create, come out of nowhere into being. And if it's a song or a group of songs, it will be what's the what's the kind of core impulse or even the core harmony, melody, and and build outwards from there. Did you keep journals as a teenager? Some. Yeah. I I got <laughs> I, I got caught up, I think, with diaries with is this really for me? Or have I got half an eye 
on posterity in case somebody else reads it in the future. Right. So that kind of self-consciousness that was there because I was already, uh, albeit a young one, but a practicing artist for whom making something was always to give out in the future after I'd worked on it as far as I could possibly take it. But I wasn't doing it only for myself. I was doing it to communicate. I was doing it because I wanted to put it out in the world somehow. And that, that was the drive with it. So um, diaries then, it was hard to think of anything actually as being really, really, really private. Hmm. Now, did you end up writing it for your future self? Like, did you go back and look at these diaries before you wrote those songs or while you were doing this project? No. No, no. Or I just pulled on memory and possibly false memory <laughs> and imagination and maybe a few photographs to remind me of, of those times. But as you know, even when you write a song that's really personal, by the time it's become a song, it's gone many steps away from the original uh, memory, the original facts, they've become transformed. They've been, they've gone through a crafting process that, that makes them in the end dubious about how, in quotes, to the latter, they are true. But I think you can want to honor, as I did with Pink Bikini, want to honor a feeling of truth, right. a feeling of authenticity behind them, even if things weren't, you know, exactly as they say. Yeah, I don't think people look or should look to songs for literal facts, but you want the emotional truth to be, you know, yes. be there to relate to and yes. reflect what the singer is singing about and assuming the singer is connecting to those emotions as well. Exactly. And there's a kind of thermometer, which is a sort of fake reader, you know, you know, when you've strayed into the land of the fake and when you need to get back on the road of truth. There are a couple of songs where you're sort of reflecting on your relationship with your mother and sort of finding empathy for her. I mean, there's the opener, which is Mama, and then there's also uh, Black Mascara, where you say, you, I, I know one day I'll say you gave me everything. At 14, life was hard, but oh, yours was so much harder. Yes. Is, is that something you'd been thinking about, or did that kind of like come to you as you were writing the song? Like, oh, you know, no, what was I've it like for her? That. I've been thinking about it for years. I really was a very resentful, angry teenager um, who was disappointed by the limits of my mother's life and all of her generation and intolerant in a way of the way that she and others seem to have accepted a limited life. Um, but of course, during that limited life, <laughs> there was a lot of work going on, and that work was called childcare of me and my brother. So um, I was, you know, in a way part of the reason because of the, the way everything was structured at that time and for that generation, um, the, the women of my mother's generation led to some extent a life of servitude, domestic servitude. And I think um, later I came to understand and value and deeply appreciate what my mother had given for me, what she'd given up for me and wanted in these songs to acknowledge that and thank her. Also in the song, Mama, you begin the whole album with the line, I came out old, then grew younger. What was that about? I've been present at two births. I don't have children of my own, but I've been present at two births and sadly at seven deaths. But at the moment of birth, looking into 
an infant emerging, looking into their eyes. There really, for me anyway, was the feeling of somebody who had already lived and then old and then visibly sort of morphed into this sort of baby that was young. So that experience stayed with me very, very strongly. To some extent, at the deaths that I've been at, the reverse seems to have happened, that somebody old becomes a baby and then disappears. But I think I also had a feeling, a sort of dim memory, if I can put it that way. Could it really be a memory? I don't know. But a dim memory of knowledge as a child that dissipated or was challenged, perhaps not accepted, or perhaps I didn't accept it myself, and that I had to act being a child. I can remember this, uh, for example, being taken to see a puppet show when I was a child, Mm -hmm. looking at it, finding it completely unfunny and stupid, but knowing that for the sake of the adults who'd taken me, I had to ha, 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 laugh and look like a child having a great time. So then I realized I was performing being a child. Now, we all do that at different times. We perform versions of ourselves or the expectations that others have of us of how to behave, how to look, how to sound, all that stuff. But I certainly remember an awareness of, of that I was a person who happened to be young. I was not the child as childhood is known or has been known relatively recently, actually. It's amazing when you look back at pictures of a century or two ago, children, first of all, working from a very young age, but also somehow behaving and dressing as if they're just, they're small people. This notion of childhood, of a sort of protected childhood, seems to be a relatively recent invention or interpretation. Right. Part of my spin on this, too, is that I think of, you know, being older is sort of being associated with your kind of settling in to your ways and what you've done. And, you know, it's sort of like it's, it's much of your activity has been in the past. Um, and part of what you associate with being younger is the sense of possibility and exploring and being curious. And and so in a sense, by you doing what you're doing now, which is making this album and and stretching your boundaries in that way, it's a very sort of young thing to do because you have uh, yeah, like I'm growing young younger. Energy. I'm definitely so, growing younger. <laughs> yes, which is what we all like I'm I'm trying to do that too. I, I you know the calendar's <laughs> telling me something different. But uh listen, but, who cares about the calendar? I know. But it gets I, so I installed in us. Well me me too, but I mean it, it gets <laughs> installed in us uh in ways that are so untrue really to to our experience most of the stereotypes of of behavior and and at any age seem to be they're not really true they're they're a kind of a guide of expectation um, and often a very limited expectation rather than relating somehow to the essence of of who you are as a person yeah, I mean, I think you could look at it as, you know, one hand, like it's a novelty that someone who's in her early 70s has, has her debut album. But on the other hand, it's it's inspiring because, A, it's very good and very totally fills like a different space for me than like a lot of what I listen to, just in terms of the beauty of the music and the the arrangements and the that and the vividness of what you're singing about. 
but also that it's inspiring because it's like, Hey, you know, this is, you can do this at, at any age and this is what it sounds like. And this is what it is. And so that first line, I came out old, then grew younger. I took as like part of that feeling of, yeah, you can, you can do this. That's nice. That's very nice. Oh, good. And you have a you have a video that you shot for Black Mascara. Um, is that you hula hooping in it? It certainly is. I made two videos actually because I couldn't figure out which would be better. It's usually, and if you can't figure it out, it's better to do both. Um, one of which is just my back view with a hula hoop because I found that I was reluctant to to be visible. I was fine with being audible. I wanted to sing. Um, but I didn't really want to put myself forward as a as a visual performer. Um, I haven't done that since I made the tango lesson twenty five years before. So I thought, okay, well, I'll show, I'll do back view, back view, and and hula hoop. How about that <laughs> in a dark alley? So I did that, and then I did one that did. I, I filmed myself actually using an iPhone and um, cut together with an editor cut together a version that did show my face too. Yeah, the so, one I saw, you're sort of watching yourself hula hoop. So I think yes. that's the second one. Yeah, so it was several selves, yeah. A self uh, singing out to the audience, a self singing to the other self. Are you making mm. videos of other songs for this? I haven't been intending to, no. I'm, I'm very much at the moment got my head down all the hours of every day on the next album. And um, that's taking all my attention now. Is that the Orlando album or just a totally no, different one? No, it's not. It's a totally different one. Totally different, different kind of scale and a different kind of tone, a uh, different vocal tone as well, actually. I found that I've been discovering some of the pleasures of having, if I can put it, a slightly broken voice and uh, letting that be there rather than attempting a kind of purity of tone. And then it reminded me that some of my favorite singers have that slightly broken quality. It's when you can hear experience creeping into a voice and cracking sure. it op open. So what's the second one? Can you talk about that? I can't really. Uh, I can't because I never do until something comes out a little bit because I okay. found... I find that something strange happens energetically if I put something out into the ether before it's ready to be there. It'll come soon enough. I hope to put it out quite soon, actually. I know, I, that's probably a bit too soon, but, uh, but I want to do it soon. I'm ready. I'm ready. You're ready not waiting hungry. another... Yeah, it's it's after I'm not you've waited waiting this long and now they're yeah, going to come out no, in quick succession. They're, gonna, they're just going to come like they're just going to be a cascade and that's all there is to it. Why'd you set aside the Orlando one, by the way? Because it's not quite ready yet. I, well, first of all, I wasn't sure. Was it, um, you know, was it a bird? Was it a plane? In other words, was it a, was this a live show with music, with singers singing live and dancers? Or is it actually another film, but very different? Or is it just a record and and so on? So until I know what it is or what it can become, um I'm holding it back. Um, also, chronologically, you know, I wrote it before Pink Bikini and before the new album, so there's revisions needed, <laughs> even though I've recorded uh, a fair amount of it. But um, it's a big, it's a big project, um, and so it needs time. And then you have another film also ready to go, or separate screenplay I do. written? I do. Yeah, I have a script written, and I 
really, I'm longing to get back on a film set and work with actors again. Um, the only problem for me at the moment, really, in life, actually, is hours in the day because of the feeling of such urgency behind all the work, which may be one of the things about that calendar business. You know, when you when you see your own age, you know, we don't have forever, then every precious moment, if you're if you want, if you love working as much as I love working, every precious moment is filled. So I have a, a scheduling issues. <laughs> Can you move ahead now with the these strikes going on because you're working independently, or is that going to throw a, a wrench into what you want to do? Well, it seems that um, really all the strikes, which I entirely support, are about streamers and. Um, big studios where the the artists, whether that's actors or people behind the camera as well, uh, get very, very small rewards for their labor, for their work, and the, it's studio executives and bosses and so on who are making really vast profits from some of these things. Now, of course, exactly the same thing applies to musicians. How musicians would strike, I'm not sure. But, you know, streaming and so on has made it incredibly difficult for most musicians to earn a living at all. I mean, it's a disaster. It's a real disaster. So what to do? What to do? Um, but because I've made my, uh, well, so I don't know actually what the, fund, what the funding source will be for the next film. I don't know. Um, until then, and while the strikes are going on, one has to tread carefully because I can't talk to actors at all at the moment about it. So you are so it, you are prohibited from just getting those discussions going at this point. Well, the actors are. So yeah. I can I can have discussions with the funding sources and with uh, people in the crew, for example, but I can't have discussions with actors right now. No. Do you have a cast in mind? I do have some in mind. Yeah. Do they know about it? Some of them do. <laughs> <laughs> um, how how exciting was it for you to get a copy of your album in hand? Well. I don't have a physical album. You know, I would wish it was vinyl. I'd love to have it on vinyl. Um, I have, but but I can, you know, I have to, I look at sort of Spotify or, or right. wherever, you know, it's, it's ethereal, it's ephemeral, it's this extraordinary moment that we're in where things are a, a click away, but they, you also can't touch them. And, um, so is there is there a CD of it, or is it just something you can download? No, at this point? no, it's just downloads at the All moment. Right. But sure. I, I really would like to do a vinyl version for sure, if I possibly can. And is that cover photo of you? Is that an old passport photo? It is. It's my passport photo when I was sixteen. Yeah, you can see like a little bit of the stamp there. So you can well spotted. <laughs> nice. Did writing these songs and performing these songs, did they kind of make you look back on this period you're writing about in a different way? You know, the way sort of art sort of makes you process things. Yeah. And I think that showed in one of the songs um, about looking back, um, about really extending a hand back to the younger self that feels the hard times will never end, never come to an end, you know, and to know that actually you can go back and kind of pull that lost soul out of history into the safety of the present. And so I guess I felt a little bit like that, that I was doing that with that whole younger self, because my teens really were very, very hard. 
and tormented at times. And so I think to know that time has passed <laughs> and um, to be able to to sing to that younger self that that time has passed. Did you sort of look at it that way, that you were in a way sort of entering a time machine and singing to, you know, this is what your younger self would have liked to hear about, you know, the perspective on, on this period in her life? By the end of the songs, yes, towards the end. I mean, the earlier songs in the cycle, if you can call it, or in the album, in the sequence, um, are much more like within the moment um, although there is often the feeling that it's a younger, an older person singing back to this younger self, nevertheless, it's they're written, um, you know, as it sort of as if in a present, as if revisiting a present right. time that was then. And um, but they gradually, as the songs progress through the album, they there's this feeling of of some distance or perspective. Is the sequence of the album the sequence that you wrote? them or is this just or and and or recorded them or is did it sort of make sense to you at the end of it to say okay this is the story that i'm telling and this is how they should flow together well actually i wrote about 30 songs and then chose these from them um i at one point wanted it to be uh 21 songs that went from year one year two year three year four and i wrote mm. a song for each year but that began to seem a little bit how can i say high concept but not really emotionally intense enough and so i chose the the period that was much more condensed that was the real teen the teenagers and then discarded the the rest and as you mentioned, you're working with musicians who are very accomplished, some you've worked with before. You have Fred Frith uh, playing on there. Um, the wonderful Fred Frith, yeah. who I've worked with since Orlando on every film, maybe bar one. But his sound, his, um, his amazing ability to go to the core, the feeling core of whatever he's playing with, whether it was has in the past been a lot of improvising and some improvising still, but also now written parts in all these songs in Pink Bikini. He always brought something to those parts that was uniquely him. His interpretive ability is second to to no one that I know on the guitar, he makes his guitar sing, growl, protest, soar. You know, he is absolutely brilliant. And it's been a wonderful collaboration working with him, really. Were you able to record these songs in the same room? Or is this one of these where everyone had to sort of send tracks to each other? Every single track was done separately. I mean, it would be lovely to get everyone in one room and play together. But no, people said they're all busy, all magnificent musicians. And so each person had to be recorded separately. So would you? did you do a, a demo to send or did you actually send sort of the basic track of you with the keyboard and then they sort of built on that? I did a complete demo of all the instruments and uh, played on Logic using, uh, you know, the samples available and tried to make them sound close-ish to the the final instrumental acoustic sound. Um, but I also just gave people written parts and then, but it meant they had at least a vocal line to sing with. And then I 
actually re-recorded the, the vocals multiple times, many times over before they were a demo that I would even consider playing to anybody else. And then once everyone else had played, of course, I then needed to lift the vocals into a different quality that would work with the actual sound right. of the, the, the musicians. So I did that. And then I re-recorded that multiple times and in, in the end recorded the vocals with the film sound recorders that I'd last worked with on the last feature film, uh, using his gear, which is a small uh, Arton, but with a very, very powerful preamp. So we just went into a soundproof room and I recorded the vocals with him. So no great big, you know, not not using a desk or anything and absolutely no reverb, no anything, just raw, 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 raw sound. Then took that sound into the mix with the, the mixers who I was working with, and but did very very little with the the vocal quality. Tiny tiny little little bit of of uh, reverb to compensate for the dry room in which they were recorded, but nothing else. The the result is that it really sounds like you and this ensemble are playing in your living room. And, uh, you know, th that to get to that point is really interesting because you're using technology in a way that makes an intimate experience. And that's always impressive. Intimacy was the word that I used. I used it with everybody. Uh, the, these were, these were not declamatory, these songs. They were as if sung to somebody like a meter or two away or in, even in closer into their ear. And that I was looking for that quality of intimacy both in the vocal sound and in the with the instruments too and people responded to that very much i think um the feeling that they didn't need to in a way perform out but perform towards a another yeah and, and in a song like the title track pink bikini it's also very intimate just kind of taking you very you know, very economically into these feelings of of you know, discovering yourself as as a young woman, but also still being a teenager, and you know dealing with a bikini and boys, and the sun burns and burns me. I'm so pink, top to toe, where the bikini doesn't show, which is yeah. a really vivid image there. And then there's and then there's all true. One, I have to say that's one know, particular song that is entirely autobiographically accurate. <laughs> right, and it's kind of painful as as a father of daughters. I'm reading that and like, oh, it's just you know, it's 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 hard. That but that's that's what you went through, and you sort of have the perspective on it now, and it's yeah. a shared. Experience experience from, you know, reflecting teenage life, but also with this, you know, perspective on it now. Yeah. Um, I look at teenage girls now and feel that I just want to sort of wrap my arms around them, you know, protect them from these painful challenges. From my blushing teenage state, from the prison of my shame, but I cannot break the chains. I'm not Houdini. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, it's really strong. As you look forward, are you are you more excited about the music than the next films, or is this all stuff that can you know work together in you know your artistic life? Well, fortunately, I don't think I have to choose between my passions. I just have to schedule them extremely well. Right. Uh, day to day, though, I come into this hut where I am, and I am drawn like a magnet to my keyboard and to the songs. So that's because right now that's what I'm in the middle of, and seemingly have been for quite a while. Um, there's a lot more music in me wanting to come out. It's as if I've been 
Well, I've hardly been waiting. I've been make, directing, writing and directing feature films, but some part of me that writes songs has been waiting for this mm. moment and now is just diving in. Well, I can't wait to hear more of it and all of it. And I hope you finish the Orlando thing too and this other one that you're not telling us about. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. I've been been a fan of your work on film and 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 even then with something like you know tango lesson i mean obviously you're sort of a renaissance person in terms of performing and exploring and dancing and singing and everything else so just creatively you know it's very inspiring to just have watched your career and work over the years so i'm glad to keep doing it and look forward to continue to do it for a long time thank you so much that's all for episode 97 of carol pop Thanks so much to Sally Potter for taking us through her artistic past, present, and future. I can't wait to see and hear what she does next. Go to sallypotter.com for more information about her films, music, and much more. You can stream and buy her album Pink Bikini on her Bandcamp page, sallypotter.bandcamp.com. It's also available on the streaming services such as Apple Music and Spotify. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, an expert traveler of the roads not taken. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.